Good morning and welcome to Mountain Radio Astronomy for the month of May. I'm Sue Ann Heatherly. I'll be your host this morning. And joining us this morning is one of our own astronomers, Dr. Ron Maddalena. You might remember uh, listening to him at some time in the past. He's joining us again. And we're going to talk about something pretty fascinating this morning. We're going to be talking about other worlds around other stars. So, Ron, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us this morning. You're welcome. All right. So, we know that there are other planets around other stars. Is that right? Yes, and every week or so we're discovering a new one. How cool is that? How many planets have been detected? The last time I checked, there were over 150 planets now known around other stars. All right. So, tell us, tell us what scientists know now about what these other solar systems are like, what these other planets are like. The solar systems, these planetary systems that we're finding, they're sort of would be the equivalent of our own solar system, you know, the planets Mercury, Venus, Mars. Well, other stars have planetary systems just like our star, the Sun, has. But we're finding that these other solar systems are very different than ours. The stars are surrounded by planets, which have planets that are much more massive than Jupiter. Their orbits are very, very close to the star. Like how close? Well, inside Mercury, we say is the planet that is the closest planet to the to, to our sun. Well, many of these other planets are inside the orbit of Mercury. Wow! And they're orbiting. Mercury takes like 80 days to go around the uh, the sun. These planets are so close into their star that they're orbiting in two days, three days, some cases under a day. So they're very, very close orbits, and and they're big too, which is very bizarre because Mercury is a very small planet. Uh, in comparison to Jupiter, and it seems to be opposite in these other other solar systems. The bigger planets are inside the orbit of Mercury, while ours is sort of a flipped version of that. So this is fairly common amongst these other stellar systems, planetary systems, that, that it's not like the solar system at all. You've got big planets with close, close orbits. That's exactly right, yep. Is that because they're easier to see? Is it easier for scientists to find solar systems like this? Well, that, that's how it started out, because um, it's the way astronomers use to detect these planets that makes it easier for uh, them to see planetary systems where the planet is very close to the star. The sensitivity of our instruments has gotten better over the years so that we could actually detect planetary systems which are similar to ours. We could detect that if a, uh, if a star had a, a Jupiter-like planet at the distance that Pluto, Jupiter has away from, the, okay. away from the sun. So it's all... So why don't you tell us a little bit about how, how you find planets around other stars. I mean, they don't glow like a star right. does, right? Right. And, well, they, they, re they reflect light, just like our planets reflect light. But the, uh, the star is so bright and the planet is so close to the star as we see it from the Earth so far away that it's very hard to see the light of the planet in the big, bright glow of the star. Right. So you really can't use uh, optical telescopes to see the planet. So you have to use other methods. And what, we, we, what astronomers use is the fact that planets have a mass. They, have a, they actually pull on the star. So one way to think of it is if you had a, think of a, think of a solar system with, with a star and a planet where it's like a little dumbbell. If the dumbbell has two equal weights and you throw it up, it circles in the middle. But if one of the weights is much heavier than the other, then it will circle mostly around the, the heavier weight. Mm -hmm. But that, but that heavy weight still moves a little bit. Well, that's what astronomers are looking at. So you're saying 
that the sun pulls on us, but we, the earth, pulls, pulls on, on the, the sun, sun a little well. bit as right. well. Right. Huh. If you looked at the, um, if you looked at our solar system, Jupiter is the most massive planet, and the sun is, the sun is, has a few times the mass of Jupiter. So the actual center of our solar system isn't at the center of the sun. It's about a tenth of the way out from the center of the sun in the direction of Jupiter. Jupiter pulls on the sun enough that this, this dumbbell of the Jupiter and the sun goes around inside the sun, but slightly off center from the sun. So because of that, because these big planets in particular pull enough on the sun, this is, how, how does that relate to how you actually get to okay. knowing the planets there? Yeah. We started off 20, 30, 40 years ago trying to look at the side-to-side uh, -side motion of the star as the planet pulled first left and then right. And that was very, very difficult, and there were some uh, false detections along the way. But the technique we use right now is not look at the side-to-side -side motion, but the actual velocity of, that, of the star. As the, if the planet is in front of the star, the star will be moving slightly toward us. If the planet is behind the star, then gravity will pull the star slightly toward. It's always pulling the star toward the planet. So we watch for changes in the velocity of the planet toward or away from us. As the By planet, looking at the stars, the stars shift itself. Right. We're looking at the, yes, we're using spectroscopy to measure the velocity of the star. star. As the planet pulls on it, it pulls it toward us a little bit if the planet is in between. Right. And then the planet orbits around behind, and we'll notice that the star is actually pulled away from us a little bit. Right. And we're measuring That's the velocity. And we're watching the very small changes in the velocity of the star as the planet pulls it in different directions. So we're seeing the star kind of wobble back and forth a little bit. Yes. Hmm. I am just amazed that that's even possible that you yep. can do that. Yep, and it's easier than this other method of watching it move side to side. So is this the technique by which these, however many, 150 planets or so have been detected by and large? All of them except for the first set of, of planets that were found. The first set of planets were actually uh, discovered by radio telescopes, not optical telescopes. Up to now, everything I've been talking about has been done by optical telescopes, but radio telescopes were the first to actually detect extrasolar planets. And there, what they were looking at were pulsars. These are very accurate clocks. Uh, they, they're spinning neutron stars. They, are, they spin many times a second. And they spin very, very regularly. It's like a very good clock. And if there's a planet or some other body around it, then that, by theory of general relativity, changes the sort of the, the beat of that clock a little bit. Well, it pulls on the pulsar, just like you were talking about planets pulling on exactly regular stars. Right, right. And so that changes a little bit the, the, the apparent period of this clock. The, the ticking of the clock will slow down and speed up, depending upon where the pla a planet-like object is around a pulsar. And, and these are very, very accurate measurements, and they were able to detect planets about the size of the Earth, multiple planets, actually, around this one pulsar. So that was the very first time. That was time. the very first time, yes, we had a really confirmed detection of uh, extrasolar planet. So what kind of a solar system would that be like? <laughs> it's one I wouldn't want to be in, that's for sure. Pulsars <laughs> are very exotic creatures. There are X-rays and gamma rays and radio waves all coming off of these things. It would not be a, uh, a pleasant place to, to live. Right. So these would be very barren planets. It's also, you know, neutron stars are caused by the, when a star is at the end of its life, it uh, basically blows up and the rem remnant is called a neutron star. So sometime in the past, a huge explosion, one of the largest explosions that can happen in a galaxy happens to generate a neutron star. And so 
anything that was there got, got wiped yes. out by that as well. Ew. So we have little cinder-like planets. These are, these are cinders, yes. <laughs> okay. okay, well, that's kind of neat that radio telescopes had a hand in detecting the first planets. Tell us a little bit about some of the things that scientists are learning about about these planets, about these other systems by, by the data that they're collecting. Sure. The, um, the thing we can do is sort of now have catalogs of planets with different characteristics, like their masses, what their orbits are like. For example, planets in most of these systems are in very eccentric orbits, the very uh, elliptical, very um, oblate orbits. Uh, most of the orbits in our solar system are very round, so we have to, astronomers have to come up with a reason why our solar system has circular orbits while these other systems have eccentric orbits. Right. Now, folks, you remember out there in Radioland that uh, you're taught in school that the Earth and the other planets have elliptical orbits around the sun, but they're just a tiny bit That's elliptical. exactly right. And those pictures and those textbooks are misleading because they make you think you've got a big egg-shaped orbit. Right. Around that's, the sun. But it's mostly circular. But it's mostly circular in but our... But they're not in these others? No. It's very, very different. And we have to come up with reasons why that, that's happened. Hmm. It just by, um, by our own theories of how planets should form, the orbits should be circular. Well, I'd like to step back and, and, and talk a little bit about that. Because what is the theory or the, the hypothesis about how solar systems form in the first place? I mean, we live in one. What's the general sort of idea as to how that happens? Start with the, start it from the very beginning. From the very, very <laughs> yeah. beginning, okay. Well, the, our galaxy has lots of material between the stars, lots of gas, lots of dust, and gravity is, pulls the stuff together ever so often. The very little can stop gravity, so things get denser and denser, and, and things like uh, turbulence starts creating little pockets of very dense packets of gas. Everything has angular momentum, so as things compress, they start to rotate. And you start forming very dense protoplanetary disks. These are very dense disks of gas. They're, they're, they're disks because the rotation sort of flattens things out into a, a pancake-shaped rotating bunch of gas. And the density gets so close that things can start dust grains and rocks can start sticking together and basically you start building up bigger and bigger objects that start colliding and coalescing and and forming larger and larger objects until you have planets. Okay, with the star in the middle. With the star in the middle. The thing that's in the middle, yes, all the mass falls into the center producing the star and the leftover stuff that's in this disk rotating around the star uh, can, can clump together. clump together to form planets. Well, why is it that, and I, I, I don't even know if there's an answer to this, maybe we don't know this yet, but why do we have planets like Earth or Venus or Mercury, and then we've got these big gas planets? Why are there... Okay, that's, that's actually, we think we know the answer to that one. The, when, you, when a planet is close to the star, a lot of the gas that would be around... Earth had the same kind of gas that Jupiter has around it, but it's so close to the sun that that gas would have been just evaporated. It would just end up being pushed out. The Earth doesn't have a strong uh, gravity. It's much smaller than Jupiter. Mm -hmm. So things like hydrogen, which is mo what mostly Jupiter is, uh, would just, just evaporate. It's okay. not, the gravity of the Earth isn't strong enough to hold back most of the hydrogen uh, around the, the, the original Earth. So just the gas just leaves and ends up in either the sun or in Jupiter. 
And so what we had left was gas that was made of big enough molecules that our gravity could, I mean, we... Yeah, we, we are built out of this dust and rocks that were in the protoplanetary nebula. All the gas ended up either in the sun or in or Jupiter. Or in Jupiter, okay. Right. So these gas giants, then, that's where you'd expect them to be, right? You'd it's out there where Jupiter is. You'd expect Saturn them is. to be out there, right. And that's another question about these other planetary systems is that these large planets should be made out of the same kind of stuff as Jupiter, made out of mostly gas. We can measure their, because we know their sizes, we can measure their density, so we know that they have to be made out of gas just like Jupiter is, yet we're finding them inside the orbit of Mercury. So we know they had to form out very far distances from, the, from their st star, and then they ended up very, very close to the sun. So there's a process that we think has to be going on where planets migrate from outer orbits to inner orbits. So they start out at the distance of Jupiter and then move in even closer than Mercury is to our sun. Hmm. So why don't we have a Jupiter near the sun? Good question. We really don't understand it. Because if we did have a Jupiter that close to the sun, that meant that it had to start out where Jupiter is and migrate inwards. Along the way, it would have swept up all the planets in between. So Mercury would have been destroyed, the Earth would have been destroyed, Mars would have been destroyed. All of them would have gone away. Right. So the reason we're here is simply because Jupiter and Saturn didn't migrate. So we have to come up with a reason why the migration didn't happen for our solar system, and it has happened for all these others. And we think we have a reason. We really don't know for sure. And that is because we have a second big planet in our solar system called Saturn. And they're locked in what's called resonant orbits. So when one planet tries to move in a little bit closer to the, to sun. the, closer to the sun, the other planet pulls it back out again. And they just keep on doing this for all eternity, and they kept themselves from, from migrating inwards. And that may be the, one of the reasons why we have life on, on the Earth is because we just accidentally had two very nice planets that decided to cooperate like this. So this migration does it of these planets in these other solar systems, does it stop, or will these planets eventually end up in their star? When the, the, they migrate inward because they are interacting with these, this protoplanetary disk around them. Okay. So um, when the protoplanetary disk evaporates because it's either absorbed into planets or, is, or the star's light pushes it away, then this migration stops. So you've got perhaps a stable orbit of this great big planet, but it's just really, really close to the sun. That's right. So I guess no little life forms on these big planets close no. to these stars. Most, most of the solar systems we're talking about right now would not have a traditional Earth-like planet circling the sun. There are other options, which is like, you know, Jupiter has many moons. Some of them are very large. And it's possible that life would form around a satellite, a moon of one of these other, pl other planets. Uh, but on these planets themselves, they're gas giants, so you're not going to see them. You, they're not going to be able to support life as we know it. They would have swept off all the other terrestrial-like planets like Earth and Mars and Venus. Uh, so we're, the only hope is that there might be some satellites, some moons around these other planets that are in the right place, in the right orbits to, uh, to uh, be able to support life. Well, it's kind of remarkable that how long ago, at least maybe... Fifteen years ago, we didn't know of any planets around any stars. That's right. This first pulsar detection of planets was 1992 or 3. So we're talking something less than 15 years old, yes. I mean, people have been trying for decades to, to do these kinds of observations, and we finally found the technique and have the sensitivity in the telescopes to do it. 
What else can you learn about, about these planets? And sometimes the, the planets are, some of them are in orbits that are uh, lined up such that the planet will go in front of the star and then go behind it, right? It's a chance occurrence of how the orbits line up with, um, with where we are in, in the universe. When a, when a planet goes in front of a star, the starlight goes through its atmosphere. And by using spectroscopy, we can actually look at some of the elements in the planet's atmosphere. The light from the star is absorbed by the planet's atmosphere, and we can see how it's absorbed and actually determine what's in the planet's atmosphere. So we see things like sodium and hydrogen in these planets' atmospheres. What would be cool to see are things like water or oxygen, because we believe that, for example, a lot of the oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere was actually generated by life. It wasn't naturally occurring, that you have to have life in order to have an, an, uh, an oxygen-dominated atmosphere. Oh, so if you find oxygen, maybe you can... You're almost sure to have a planet with life around it. Oh, that'd be neat. That'd be neat. And that's, you mentioned the word spectroscopy, and I know we've talked about it uh, with others before, but let's just make sure that everybody uh, knows what this technique is. So the light from the star is passing through the planet's atmosphere, and then we're detecting the result of that on Earth. And we use, I guess, a special instrument to be able to determine what elements or atoms are in the atmosphere. So tell, tell us what that instrument is and how you do it. Well, we're doing spectroscopy and we use something called a spectroscope. <laughs> hey! hey that's, a, that's a good name for that device. Basically, what it does is it generates for optical telescopes uh, sort of like a, the equivalent of a rainbow. And if there are elements in the star's atmosphere, there would be... Um, certain colors wouldn't exist in that rainbow. And every element, every compound, every chemical ha would produce a different color of light that they would, that would get absorbed. So by looking at just the colors of lights that are being absorbed by the gas in the, in the, um, in well, the spectrum. People are familiar with um, sun catchers and little prisms and crystals that they hang up in their, in their windows. And so, you know, that makes a rainbow. But you're saying there'd be little dark gaps in this rainbow. That's right. Uh, there'd be a small region where there wouldn't be any green. And these dark lines, these patterns of dark lines, the pattern is belongs to a particular element. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. And if you want a great example of this, come to the NRIO Science Center. <laughs> we have lots of exhibits which show you exactly, hands-on exhibits showing you exactly okay. how this works. So it's like a barcode. It's like a barcode. Yeah. And so... Um, uh, sodium has a particular set of dark lines in this rainbow, and you can always say that you're looking at sodium, for example. That's right. But that's amazing that that this tiny little, I mean, because even a Jupiter-sized planet is pretty tiny compared to a star, that that you can see that tiny effect. We have very large telescopes and very <laughs> sensitive detectors now, so this is the way we're doing it, yes. The CCD revolution, the thing that's in your cameras, really has helped astronomers do all sorts of things that we would never have thought of before. All right, so... We'll recap for a little bit here. Our solar system appears to be pretty special. Right. And that may well be that life is pretty special, I guess. Yeah, it could be true. Could be true, but we don't, I guess with 150 planets detected, we don't have enough data yet. Right. So there'll be a lot more going on Well, there. we do know life is possible. Yeah, we do know that. Because <laughs> it's worked once. It's worked, yeah. it's worked once. Well, let's talk a little about... Um, if there's a, a radio astronomy tie-in, most of this work to date has been done with optical telescopes or perhaps, I don't know, have infrared telescopes been involved at all? Or yeah, infrared is recently? very good for 
for determining the temperature of these planets. Okay. Um, the same planets that go in front of the star also go behind. So by looking at the starlight, the, the total light of the system before and after one of these eclipses, mm -hmm. you can actually measure the, the temperature of the planet in okay. the infrared. So infrared is really good for doing this. Radio astronomers have been looking at the, these protoplanetary disks for generations. Mm -hmm. We've never been able to, with our current radio telescopes, to actually see planets inside these disks of accumulating material. Yeah, I think uh, maybe last year or the year before there was a press release about astronomers had used the very large array and were able to somehow detect rocks. That's <laughs> pebbles, exactly right, yes. Pebbles around a star because these pebbles were on the order of a few centimeters in size and so they were re-radiating centimeter-sized radio waves or something like That's that. That's exactly right. We were seeing the temperature of the the, this rocky stuff in, okay. in, these, in these protoplanetary disks. So we can see the planets before they get clumped together and form. We can see the light from the whole from accumulation the whole of it. We don't see the individual rocks and pebbles. Right. What we see is sort of the general glow from all of the rocks and pebbles in these things. Okay. And that's what we have right now, but there's a telescope that the NRO is building called ALMA. It's a large telescope. It's going to be actually multiple telescopes. It's going to be situated in uh, the mountains of Chile. And it's going to have the best sensitivity, the best angular resolution of any radio telescope ever. Tell us what's special about this telescope. It's not like the Green Bank Telescope, for example. Right. The Green Bank Telescope observes at relatively long radio wavelengths of three millimeters or longer. We go from the radio wavelengths we're looking at are from 10 meters to 10 millimeters in wavelength. ALMA will be picking up where the GBT leaves off. It will be going from 10 millimeters all the way down to below one millimeter in wavelength. So get out your rulers, folks, and look at that, that side of your ruler that's not in inches, but that's in centimeters, and you'll see ten, teeny little divisions right. in between one centimeter and the next, and those are millimeters. Those are millimeters. And this telescope will be, it's actually multiple telescopes scattered across um, many miles in the mountains of Chile. And the larger you, you separate your telescopes, the more angular resolution you will get on an object. And these so you will dishes see, are like, they're shiny too, sort they of, right? very, very close to being, very yes. Smooth. You will see your, your own face if you looked in, inside of one of these things, yes. It's not like the GBT, which is sort of a painted white kind of thing. It's going to be almost like a real good mirror. Okay. So, so what do you see? So with these things, what will we see? What will we see? What we're predicting to see are a couple of things. The resolution is going to be so good that we're able to not even not only see the protoplanetary disk, but we're all going to we're all going to see, as I said before, that these planets as they migrate in are just going to sweep up matter. So there will be gaps, and we will be able to, with Alma, to see many protoplanetary disks, and some of them will show up these gaps, and that will be a, almost a direct indication that a planet is forming in these disks. Neat. What else can ALMA do for us with regard to planets? So we can see these disks and, and gaps in them. Right. We talked about being able to see the, um, the atmospheres of planets but if they are in these special orbits. Well, ALMA will be able to do that regardless of the uh, orientation of the planet's orbit. ALMA will be able to, for example, uh, detect water and oxygen in planetary atmospheres for planets around the nearest dozen or so stars. So if there's a life-forming planet within 30 light years of the, um, of the Earth, we'll see it. We'll be able to detect it with ALMA. That's just super. 
and of course everybody wants to, find that planet that has the right characteristics so that they can say, you know, this planet's got good characteristics for life, like the Earth, maybe. Maybe we should go there. Yeah, or maybe we should at least send out a howdy-do. That's right. <laughs> Are there any neighbors out there? Well, that sounds great. I think that's going to be really, really fascinating. And, and there's a lot of information on the web, I'm sure, for people that uh, want to learn more about the search for extrasolar planets. And um, I will give you all a couple of web addresses before I sign off for this month's Mountain Radio Astronomy. Thanks so much for being with us, Ron. You're welcome, Sue. That was fun. All right, so before we're done for this edition of Mountain Radio Astronomy, we will be talking with Bob Anderson, who is our resident amateur astronomer, and I hope he'll tell us a little bit about this comet that's breaking up into lots of little pieces. Welcome back, Bob. Thanks for being with us this morning. Good to be here. I want to hear about this comet. Comet Schwashman Wagman. <laughs> right? I said I wasn't going to giggle when you said that. That's a mouthful, isn't it? It is. This comet's been around for a while. Uh, it's not its first pass around the sun, but most notably, it has started breaking up on its last pass a few years ago, and this time around, it's in a number of fragments, and likely we won't see it on its next pass around the sun in a few years. It's been visible in telescopes for a number of months, but as it, the Earth's path around the sun and the comet's path got closer and closer together, uh, we're seeing more and more fragments as this thing breaks apart. It uh, is also getting brighter. Right now, though, you've got to get up about 3 a.m. in the morning to be able to see it when it's high enough in the sky. But then uh, morning twilight interrupts around 5 a.m. to 5.30. Definitely by 5.30, you won't be able to see much of anything left. It is not quite visible to the naked eye unless you know exactly where to look. Uh, you will be able to see it in binoculars, weather permitting, and that has not been very favorable here lately. Well, tell us where to look. It's in the eastern sky. If you know the constellations a little bit, you can look for the summer triangle of bright stars, which is Vega, Altair, and Deneb, and it's relatively close to Vega, but in the middle of, the, of that summer triangle. I uh, scratched out a little map this morning and put it over in the tour center for anybody that's interested for the next few mornings. The full moon tomorrow morning, which I guess this will go out on Saturday, it actually the full moon is Saturday morning, but it'll start interfering more and more uh, with viewing the comet, uh, as well as the comet fragments are headed down to uh, the east, and so twilight catches it sooner. And so I would say that certainly by midweek, say Wednesday of next week, that uh, it'll be very hard to find. Folks, get out there and take a look while you can tomorrow morning. Yes. <laughs> get up at 3 a.m. Right now it looks like the, the clouds will have dissipated a little bit overnight, and uh, tomorrow morning's probably our best shot at, at seeing this. Why does a comet break up? they know why this happened? Uh, the tug of war that usually occurs between the planets and the sun, particularly the sun, they believe that this one in particular broke up uh, after a close pass around Jupiter is the way I understood it. And it's just a constant tug of war between Jupiter and the sun. And actually Jupiter catches a number of comets or alters their orbits. Back in 94, there was a comet that passed relatively close to Jupiter and 
ultimately crashed into it after breaking into a number of fragments. That was Shoemaker Levy. Yes. That was really amazing to see. Yeah, that was telescope. fun to see. Did you look at that with your telescope? At yeah, the time? At, at that time you could actually see these uh, fragments going into Jupiter, and you couldn't actually see the explosion, but you could see shortly afterwards a black spot yeah. appear on Jupiter, and it was just a ring of these as Jupiter turned on its axis, just like the Earth turns every day, and these comets impacted it just like bombs going in on the surface of the planet. So what else should we be looking for this time of year? Well, if you don't want to get up at 3 a.m., if you go out uh, and uh, about 11 p.m. Uh, to about midnight, you can see the moon and Jupiter very close together uh, Saturday night and also Sunday night. Uh, it's a, the moon is a good uh, beacon to locate Jupiter. Jupiter is a bright star. Even in binoculars or a small telescope, the moons of Jupiter show up really well. And in larger telescopes, you can see the belts of Jupiter. So that's really worth getting out and looking for. All right. Saturn is also sinking into the west. Uh, you can see it as soon as uh, twilight ends in the evening, and it's over in the western sky, and you should uh, be able to point a small telescope at it as well. All right, um, so Saturn in the west. Yes. Jupiter in the east. Yes. And Before the sun comes up in the morning, you'll see Venus, too, if you're out looking for the comet. All right, thank you, Bob. Thank you. See you next time. Bye-bye. We are out of time for this month's Mountain Radio Astronomy. I'm so glad you all joined us this morning. I've got um, that web address for you. If you're interested in finding more information about extrasolar planets, the best website to go to is planetquest, that's all one word, dot jpl dot nasa dot gov. It's an excellent site. Take a look at it, and I'll be seeing you next month with Mountain Radio Astronomy.